Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 11th, 2024, episode 238, OA Any Day. Hello everyone, welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner. I'm your host, Kevin England. On a roll lately, and hoping to keep my foot on the gas as this go-round we're bringing you a full episode. It's been an interesting week, and this week's show will be a mix of real-time things going on in the moment, and a few features that I've worked on recently that I'm going to cover along the way. I'm going to get right to it when it comes to telling you what we have on today's show. Roundtable number one, Super Bowl Bees. There's a new addition to the family. And one of those activities that came by surprise. To that end, I'm not going to ruin the surprise. You'll hear what happened from a recording that was made in the moment. Roundtable number two, there's skills that you come by as a beekeeper, which defy really a proper answer. In this roundtable, I'm going to talk about the dynamics of how to know your hive is queenless. Roundtable number three, honeybee syndrome. Have you ever heard of it? No, me either. In this roundtable, we're going to talk about monotol, and I'll tell you what it is and how it relates to honeybees. Roundtable number four. It's an examination of the practice of using oxalic acid when the hive is in the midst of rearing bees. Is this a good idea? I'm going to make the case that we might want to re-examine fringe practices and consider our options. There's one topic for this episode. I'm going to play my hand at behaving like artificial intelligence, but apply beekeeping expertise as I examine some disclosures made by beekeepers conversing amongst themselves in various beekeeping forums in the Facebook universe. Well, the episode's going to round out with the first local hive report of the year. Now, before I head in, I wish you a good Super Bowl, if that's your thing. Chances are you're going to listen to this after the game has concluded, and here's to hoping it's going to be a great game, and the team that you are rooting for ends up winning. I could say, for me personally, I win every year when the Super Bowl's over, because the Daytona 500 is about to break wide open, and I always attribute the Daytona 500 to the proper start of the beekeeping season, as the two go hand in hand. When it's warm enough to race in Daytona, you should be thinking about beekeeping. I should say apologies for the diversion. And I want to say, there's a new NASCAR show on Netflix. It's really good. If you want to grasp what NASCAR is about, beyond cars going around in circles, give the show a watch. It's the perfect appetizer for understanding what takes place behind the scenes in NASCAR as the new season is about to begin. All right, thank you for indulging me on that. And let's start talking about bees. Roundtable number one, I call this one Super Bowl Bees. 
To open the show, I'm going to play you a short recording. Earlier this week, we did something that's a first for us in beekeeping. We hived our first colony of the year after receiving a phone call from an acquaintance who recommended us for taking a colony out of a bee tree that had been cut down by a tree company. I'm going to play the recording which was made in the car while driving back from completing the activity. It's a car recording and so the quality is so-so. I guess the one thing I'll say before I push play is, while it's an audio recording, I think you could probably tell I have a big smile on my face. It's February 8th, about 10.05 in the afternoon, and I am on Highway 31 driving home from the Pennington area, and Sharon is beside me. And Sharon, what did we just do? Hello, everyone. Well, we just rescued some bees from a bee tree that was cut down today. So we got a phone call from somebody who phoned somebody who phoned somebody who phoned somebody that knew that we were beekeepers, and they asked us if we would come right away. And it's unseasonably warm, 50-plus degrees today. But tonight it's going to go down to the 20s or 30s. This bee tree, they had cut part of a limb out of a tree. And when it hit the ground, the section, which was about 24, 30 inches long, split in half. And there was a colony inside. So for us, it was easy peasy. All of the bees were exposed with the comb. We just simply took it apart piece by piece and moved it into a hive box. So Sharon, you did the tie the frame up. We talked about how to do it on the ride there after we mustered and got all the equipment in. What was the hardest part of tying all that comb up? Being very sticky while you do it. Yeah. I mean, you're so sticky, you stick to everything, and your gloves stick to each other, and bees stick to that. And I think you asked me three times about the orientation of the comb. Right, that seemed hard to, to figure out. I never learned that. So you learn something new every day. So a honeycomb hangs in a frame, and it has a natural tilt upwards. And so when you're pulling it out of a bee tree, there was a ceiling in the bee trees in some way, and you kind of have to look at the honeycomb and determine which way was up. But when you pull the chunk of comb out with, without being in a frame, you kind of have to turn it around a little bit. And I think what throws you off is, Sometimes the area where it's attached or the way that it breaks off is not in line like straight with the honeycomb. And so you may have to trim it across the top in order to get it even with a row. But we figured it out, right? Yeah, I, you figured it out. <laughs> well, you got it. So we ended up picking through the frames and there were clumps and clusters of bees. And lo and behold, the third frame, or the third, let's say, face of comb that we pulled out, I stopped and looked at every bee, and I found the queen. We put her quickly into a frame and stuck that in the hive. And before we left, 
I pulled some drawn comb that has honey available in it. And we were able to take the comb, tie it up in the frames, the empty frames that we brought with twine, and put that in with comb that had both drawn cells and some honey stores. And in the end, it was a small little cluster. It probably filled three frames of bees. And I guess one of the questions we had, we were just talking about it as we drive home. When the tree cutter cut this off of the tree, they left part of the trunk up there. And we could see bees flying in what was up there. So we think he cut the nest right through the middle. But we know we got the queen because we spotted her. And so the question lies, will the colony stay in the box that we put them in? Or will they fly back up to the home? I, I think they're going to stay put. We'll find out. We asked the homeowner who filmed the whole thing and was so appreciative. If we could just leave the box there so that any errant bees would find the box and hopefully come into it. And in a couple days we'll go back and pick it up. We filled a six-frame polystyrene nuke, and it was probably half full with bees, so it's a decent-sized nuke colony. The funny thing is when I picked a frame up, or I keep saying frame, there's no frame. When I picked the swath of comb that the queen was on, she took her abdomen and stuck it in and laid an egg. So we made sure that we grabbed that piece and put it right away into the colony and covered it with nurse bees. So, Sharon, I think that was mission accomplished. All that we planned in our haste to do it was perfect. We lit a smoker. We had a nice little table to work on. I don't know that we would do anything differently, would you? No, seemed to work out very well. And the homeowner loved the little bits of honey she got. <laughs> yeah, we gave the homeowner a, a chunk of honeycomb that was in the thing. Is We drive by Giles Tree Service where we did that be cut out last July or August or whenever it was. I'd like to know how that hive was doing that we cut apart. The trunk. That thing was massive. It was five, six times the size of what we cut up today. So who knows? You know, it's uh, before the Super Bowl and we did our first bee job this year. That's kind of cool to think about. And no stings. No stings, neither one of us. Bees were docile and fine. And they were flying. It was 50 degrees, so. I thought the comb, you did a great job putting the comb in. It almost yeah. looked like it was built into the comb. Thank you for teaching me. My first experience at it. So, time will tell how this works out. Hopefully, when we go back, the bees decided to stay in the box. And more of the bees that were flying up in that nest. One of the things thinking about it is there's probably resources up in the tree. But obviously he cut through the nest, so there's a hole facing the sky. And so other bees can come and get to those resources. And I think in time they'll come and clean that all out. Whatever is up there may not be able to defend the hole that's facing the sky. 
And if it's any inclination to the piece that was on the ground, the hole's got to be eight inches across. So if it rains, it's going to pour right down into what's left up in the tree. So hopefully in time, those bees that are up there will realize that is not a viable place to be. And they'll smell the colony down on the ground and come and join their fellow nestmates. But time will tell. You never know how this works out. So we left the two halves of the trunk laying on the ground. They're both covered with honey that came out of comb that broke when the tree fell. And from that perspective, we expect the next couple days to be rather active there as other bees smell and come and clean that up. But when it's done, they're nice little show pieces for us to bring to a meeting and show people what the interior of a beehive looks like. It almost looks like somebody made a display piece because it's split right through the middle and you could see both sides of the nest right through the center. So that was kind of cool, I thought. And the homeowner said, please take it. She'd be happy to give it to us. So mission accomplished. Sharon got her wings. Yay! Nice job. And, yeah, good way to start the 2024 beekeeping season. Roundtable number two, I want to talk about a topic that there's no right or wrong answer to, and it's about detecting queenlessness. There sure are a lot of ideas out there, and I want to explore a manner in which we typical hobby beekeepers can assess this and come to a conclusion. The topic here is how long does it take for a colony to realize that it's queenless? To answer this question, I'm going to circle back to a single encounter and cite two wildly conflicting thoughts and then discuss a way to reconcile what to do with this. What I'm going to tell you is a little bit loose and fast, given the origin of what I'm talking about came from what was the equivalent to a paramount to a soundbite that was said in the context of a presentation given during a moment at EAS 2022. Yes, 22. I had a note to come back to this at some point because it struck me during that week how to answer something so wildly diverse. I would bet that if you went around and asked some extremely knowledgeable people what the answer is to this question, you'd get a wide array of answers. Case in point, Somewhere during that week, I had written a note that Tom Seeley said bees would not be able to detect that they were queenless for about 20 hours. When Tom speaks, the world stops and listens. And I'm not questioning his judgment. And I want to assume that when he made that statement back in 22, he was speaking about an explicit experience that he had and was giving a point related to the data as it was observed, the thing he was talking about. Anyone in the audience who's not inclined to know better, meaning they don't have real world experience with this type of thing, might have accepted that for face value and would lock in that it takes a colony 20 hours to determine if the queen is gone. 
Standing up for Tom Seeley, I'm positive that it's not what he was attempting to convey in the moment. Although, actually, maybe he was. I, I don't know. Yet, you're always wondering, as a new beekeeper, well, how long does it take for the colony to determine whether it's queenless? And when you hear Tom Seeley say it, you might just lock it in at that moment. Tom said it. It's 20 hours. The next day, or day after that, I, I don't remember which, New Jersey's John Gott gave a talk about honeybee queens, and in the course of delivering his presentation, he mentioned that the colony knows it's queenless in about 25 minutes. That's what I wrote down in my notes. Again, it should be noted here that that factoid was likely in context to some experience John was relaying. And if you flat out walk up and ask John how long does it take, he might consider the matter in the moment when you're talking to him and not about that moment he was relaying. And holistically, he could give you a different answer. And this is where the critical thinking part that I want to share with beekeepers is when you consider a question like this and you get an expanse of answers. If we really analyze this from a 50,000 foot level, we have no idea when a specific worker we're staring at walking around on the face of the comb gets the message that the queen is no longer there. How do we know what that bee is thinking? We assimilate beekeepers, biological clues based on the behavior of the colony, the superorganism, and from that we extrapolate that the bees perceive that they are queenless because they've somehow changed their behavior to react in a manner that's conducive with colony survival and making a new queen. And we've discovered something that's observable. In the background, that's what someone like Tom Seeley and or John Gott are clued in on. Now, with this evaluation, we come to the realization that we have two data points to consider because we really don't know the answer. And what's even more disturbing is if you're a new beekeeper, how do you actually get this answer so that you could walk around knowing how long it takes that a colony is queenless? Let's take a moment to visit this topic as it relates to discovery. Credit where credit is due, the great bee researcher Francois Hubert documented this in his 1792 discovery and said, quote, When a queen is removed from her colony, the bees do not at first seem to miss her, and they may even be several hours before disquiet commences. Agitation commences in one part. The disturbed bees run over the comb and meet others, and the antennae are reciprocally crossed and lightly struck. The recipients become agitated in their turn, and the disorder rapidly spreads through the entire colony. End quote. This suggests that at least we know the condition, meaning the queen is no longer present and a reaction commences within a 24-hour window. I draw that distinction because let's play out another alternative. Presuppose that in the course of working through the colony, you inadvertently crush your queen. It is plausible that the deceased queen would still be present in the environment and worker bees could come into contact with her 
and still have the ability to spread her essence around, even though she's no longer functional. In this scenario, we really can't tell how long it might take for them to figure out that she's no longer a viable queen. That's in stark contrast to the queen that's physically missing, and she's no longer present to spread it around, and so detection can come earlier. When you start to look at this from the conditional aspects, you could see why there's no explicit answer and it may take many hours for the bees to recognize when the queen is no longer present based on actually the status of the queen. So when it comes to my answer when asked this question, as much as I appreciate the work that Tom Seeley has done, and honestly, I don't know what Tom's answer to this question would be. The earlier point notwithstanding because that was made in context of some presentation he was giving in that moment. I believe that I would be more inclined to listen to people who work in our industry and operate with queens on a daily basis. So coming back to John Gott, I personally know John and I know that he's heads down in the spring starting in the spring and all through the height of the beekeeping season, rearing queens. In the course of conducting his operation, the physical manifestations of creating a queenless situation so that he can introduce a new queen likely occurs tenfold any over any normal hobbyist like me, who just doesn't have the reason to get themselves into that type of state in their hive. And if John says that the bees in the colony only take a handful of hours to actually recognize that the queen is no longer present, then I'm going to listen to what he's saying because he does this all the time. He has real-world experience. And I also know that John grasps the behavior of the bees, what they present, like what Francois taught us, and can detect the presence of queenlessness because he's an experienced beekeeper and that's not a skill exceeding his ability to read the situation. I'm sure Tom Seeley has that too. Like, look, I want to come back and say Tom, I'm not saying Tom doesn't know what he's talking about. In fact, yeah, sharp dude, like savant sharp. But in the case of evaluating this, no disrespect to Tom, when it comes to collecting data, I would take input from something that John says, something that Tuckabee says, what Corey Stevens might say, certainly Sue Kobe, if she weighed in on this. The common denominator between all of those people I just rattled off when it comes to the expertise of queen and queen behavior and colony biology related to queens, they know what they're talking about. And if they say that a colony is aware of a queenlessness situation when a queen's not present over the course of just a handful of hours, you could pretty much assume that they're taking it from real world experience. If I kept thinking about this, I could probably pick another handful of people that I would trust on the subject. Clarence Collison, David Tarpey, they come to mind. Larry Connor, who wrote the book on this. And then I'm positive at some point that Dewey Karen looked into this because he probably wrote about it in his beekeeping biology book, also written with Larry Connor. 
I realize I didn't really provide an answer to this, did I? So now I'm going to tell you what I believe after having to looked for an answer, because I knew at some point I'm going to have to do that to this age old question for many beekeepers. And I'm sorry to say there's a conditional element to share with you before I give you the answer. And when I tell you this, you're going to understand and you're going to say, ah, okay, that makes sense. A colony becoming aware that it no longer has a queen is predicated to some extent on the size of the colony. Let me be more illustrative on that. If you remove a queen from a five frame nuke, the message that the queen is missing would spread post haste. In contrast, if you did the same thing to a full size colony at the height of the season when they had 50,000 occupants, it might take a touch longer for that colony to get the message. So when you look up the answer to this, most presentations do one of two things. They state it in a generality. They say the colony can detect it with a number of hours, but they're not specific. The second tactic that I've seen used is they hedge their bet by saying it can happen from anywhere from two hours to two days. And at least the most common responses fall somewhere in that range. Although, me personally, I typically think from what I've seen, it's two hours to 24 hours. Based on my experience of keeping bees for a decade and a half, it's an hour to four hours. That's my final answer. It's an hour to four hours. I've done this. I pulled a queen. I've killed a queen. I've changed, you know, when you... When you're making a split and you take the queen out of the box and you put her in the other box and then you get on to doing what you're doing and you come back to the original box and put it all back together. Maybe you're doing that so that they can raise their own queen. If, if the power of observation tells me anything, it's one to four hours. Now, if I were going to introduce a new queen into a queenless colony, I would still put her in a queen cage and lower my risk that the colony would accept her as the replacement. That's not to say that I haven't taken a mated queen, one that's laying and dropped her right into a queenless colony without any introduction window. I, you know, actually, I, I know, for example, that last year I did that with a hopelessly queenless box and they accepted that queen with no reservation. The point here is when the queen has a lot of pheromone that she's giving off because she's just been laying and you put her in a box that's hopelessly queenless, chances are they're going to detect her and love the fact that they've been giving a function queen again and it will quiet the box down actually pretty quickly. So if you're a new beekeeper, experience will come. And what I have to say is patience, grasshopper. <laughs> Sooner or later, you'll probably encounter a situation where you have a queenless hive. And it's at that moment that you begin to build your personal book, your experience on how long you think it takes for a colony to recognize that it's queenless. Roundtable number three, honeybee syndrome. 
Before I start this, I want to offer a bit of a rationalization about what I'm going to talk about. And if it's not known lately, I've been a little more open about sharing my personal opinions and assessment of things lately. I don't know, just seems to be some sort of theme that's been coming out. And here I go again. If you know upfront what this is about, it is a touch of a glimpse of critical thinking, then my hope is that you will take it at face value and refrain from being inclined to judge me when I present a viewpoint that could be perceived in some ways as a wannabe know-it-all. I'm going to tell you what I am going to tell you in hopes of illustrating how I might, in the moment, process and interpret some information that I've stumbled upon and look to formulate a learning to add to my personal approach for how I manage honeybee colonies. As an aside, even with that disclaimer, judge me if you wish. I'm okay with critical thinking. In fact, I encourage it from you. You don't have to be someone that just goes along with the pack. The point is, one way to go about something, and I would hope that along the way you might find your own way, that's a good thing. And, well, okay, let's get started. Occasionally, I find some information that I consume in one manner, and it bridges to an understanding for me in an entirely different context. To illustrate the point, I sometimes take time on this show to articulate a perspective that essential oils, as it relates to honeybees, well, they're a source of confusion for me. I want to think that they could be an invaluable resource to beekeeping if we could just figure out a way to unlock their potential. Yet, there are many interesting intersections of how they might help, but there's really never concrete evidence enough for me personally to demonstrate the benefits. There's certainly risks, and there's all kinds of instructions out there. An example, case in point, there is very little real-world information about dosing bees with tea tree oil, though you can find no absence of suggestions that have expressed it's a beneficial thing to do. Now hold on to that notion and I'm going to run you down another path via a question. If I said to you, how do you think honeybees would do if they were exposed to the sugars inherent in the following products. Sweet potatoes, butternut squash, peaches, pumpkins, watermelon, celery, olives, snow peas, onions, and, well, there's more, but I'm going to stop here. What's your take? Any problems in there? Lurking? Anything? I won't do the Jeopardy music thing. <laughs> I'll go one further on the question. The general take using real-world knowledge is that there is likely a little impact. Case in point, if you left the remnants of a watermelon sitting out on the picnic table and the honeybees found it, you could readily watch them imbibe on the sugars that attract them with apparently no strife. Now, this is me, but I'm going to say the same is true for all of the other things that I mentioned. If you left a piece of 
butternut squash out for some reason. Maybe you throw it in the compost and you would see the bees consuming it. But, and you knew there had to be a but, otherwise there wouldn't be a point to this. The fact is, there's a minuscule chance for harm. As each of those items I rattled off contain a trace amount of a sugar called mannitol. And here is where I might guess that it's likely you've never heard of mannitol, which is spelled M-A-N-N-I-T-O-L. This classification of sugar is in fact highly toxic to honeybees. To expand on this topic, mannitol is a sugar alcohol that's found naturally in fresh mushrooms, algae, especially brown algae, and the bark of the manna ash tree. I want to branch off to the manna ash tree. Oh, yeah, see what I did there? The manna tree, species Frox in Ornos, <laughs> I probably butchered that, is native to southern Europe and southwestern Asia and produces a substance called manna, which contains mannitol, the sugar alcohol that I'm referring to. The presence of its properties is well documented, and it has garnered much attention as mannitol has medicinal properties for human beings and is actively pursued for its benefit in human bodies, especially as it relates to cancer therapies. It is purported that it's showing promise to slow cancer cell replication and said to enhance chemotherapy effectiveness, along with other tangible benefits. As exciting as this is, and I do appreciate it, I want to focus more on the honeybee aspects of the compound and bridge it back to the commentary about essential oils. If we draw an analogy, there have been reports of mushrooms being beneficial to bees. See the work from Paul Stamets. And we know that honeybees must be exposed to watermelons in the field as well. As they are in watermelon fields, they're instrumental in pollinating watermelons. At different times of seasons, but I'm sure that they're there. So we have this juxtaposition that certain mushrooms and watermelons contain these types of sugars. And what about us? If it has impact on cancer studies, what if we ingest it directly? As it turns out, in the human world, mannitol sugars are actually employed as a sweetener in some products found on grocery store shelves. And of course, we routinely consume the product items that I ran through a bit ago. As such, it should be evident that it's not harmful when consumed by humans. But isn't it interesting aside to learn that something highly toxic to bees is lurking in the products that you and I are routinely eating. And up until this moment, most of us, me included, were completely unaware. You might be wondering, what is the actual problem as it relates to honeybees? The source article that took me down this rabbit hole was one on my MSN news feed about honeybees. It was entitled, Manos sugar kills honeybees, but could it also help fight cancer? And it had this to say about what the impact to bees are. Quote, Manos is a type of sugar that is lethal to honeybees because they cannot digest it like humans do. 
Consuming mannose causes honeybees to lose the ability to properly replicate and synthesize the compounds of DNA, which leads to their demise, end quote. I'd like to move on to the next item on the stack for the episode, but before I do, I want to share my takeaway, and it's that there's just so many interesting things out in the world as it relates to honeybees, and just about every day, I come across something new to learn, and who knew? Hearing and discovering information like this forces me to process how I might use information such as this in my operation. One of my first impressions is, do not take what you feed to the bees lightly. We all know regular table sugar will do no harm. I'm safe to say that, given the ubiquitous process employed worldwide. But if someone came to me and said, I'm going to choose this special mushroom and make an elixir to feed my bees. My first thoughts going forward will be, wasn't there a class of mushroom that holds a toxic sugar? And do I really want to get on board with this? No, no, I don't think I'm going to jump on that fad. You know, somewhere along the line, I hope that this learning will be there lurking in the back of my mind and yours and serve to give us pause. And you would want more defined science to back up why I or you might consider, you know, bee variation of mushroom pies, watermelon slushies, a nice butternut squash pumpkin puree milkshake for your bees. It's got to be there on Instagram somewhere. It's the solution to the problem. If anyone asks you, have you ever heard of honeybee syndrome, which is what this mannitol poisoning has been deemed, you could say yes. That a syndrome has been known for over a century and results in the lethal death of honeybees from consuming mannose sugar. I'll have a link to that article I referenced in the show notes. Roundtable number four, OA Any Day. For this roundtable, I'm going to say out loud something that might be obvious to a lot of those who have gotten on board, but it feels like the more I hear people talk about this in the wild, the more it is a new discovery to the masses. Perhaps it's the way the industry talks about something in the United States that holds a practice from evolving, but what I'm about to say is something I think the rest of the world seems to know, and we're just catching on. What I'm talking about is the change in perception as it relates to the use of oxalic acid for more than just broodless periods. Over the years of doing this podcast, I've made some acquaintances out of outside of the United States. And there were times when we would discuss the way we do things and the practices that they follow vary slightly or quite widely. I go back to Giancarlo in Italy when I had the conversation with he and, and the other beekeeper, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, and the things that they said that they do, that we now do here. In the case of oxalic acid, the U.S. has always stuck to its only 
something you do when the colony is broodless. Yet in other places you could find accounts of where they were doing OA doses on a routine basis at times when the colony was actively rearing bees. Especially in Europe is my perception, and other places, but especially in Europe. It's not like we didn't know that this was a thing. It's just that there's a general impression that it wasn't useful and therefore should not be practiced. I'll go back to the interview with Kathy Misko just a few episodes back and recall the conversation about powdered sugar dusting and make the correlation in reflection that it's not about killing varroa mites outright like a nuclear blast. In my mind, the takeaway, my personal one, was keeping them at bay a little bit at a time. Well, I'm going to make a prediction. This is the year we're going to get over ourselves. I think this is going to be the year where it becomes more popular and dare I say, okay to OA any day. Now hear me when I say this, I don't literally mean apply oxalic acid every day, but certainly I think it can be applied early in the season, during the height of the season, and at any other time you darn well please, in meter doses, of course. Now, I'm not telling you this is a good idea. I'm just telling you that I think this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go one step further and say there's a bit of a reason, too, why this is going to head in this direction at this time, and it's probably not what you're thinking. It ties back to the equipment I happen to have an OA device. It's first generation. It's, by comparison to today's tools, a massive device designed to hook to a car battery. And well, it was pretty darn clunky to use. It works and I'm sure that someone would not be adverse to using it because it's not a trivial investment to buy one of these oxalic acid vaporizers. But I'll go out on a limb and tell you what I think. The people that bought the first generation devices, and since they were costly, were compelled to use them and did it for a few times. They used them. But in time, some of them probably grew weary of getting out a battery pack or some sort of, you know, thing to hook to their car. And they passed on juicing the hive with OA doses because it was a bit of a hassle. I kind of say you can count me in on that little bit, but actually I'm in this low treatment period and mine sits on the shelf. What has changed, however, and this is key, is the evolution of the device to use power packs from portable drills. With the convenience of a battery powered device that fits in your hand, well, that's where I think this is going to turn the tide. Coming back to OA any day, that's already a thing. Conversations on the interwebs demonstrate that there are enough outliers out there who simply ignore what the experts say about broodlessness, and they take to applying oxalic acid in periodic intervals, say every five to seven days, and feel the satisfaction of killing the mice they find on the bottom board every time they stick the poker in the hive. 
As I was alluding to earlier, some that I know overseas have been doing this for years. In fact, one of the tactics they use is to hold the mites below the threshold. They use OA on their hives on a routine basis, and they're actually foregoing any other kind of treatments. Kevin moment. That idea, hitting the mites with OA during the season. Notwithstanding the fact that repeated doses introduce acid into the hive environment without understanding what that does over a long term, it's an interesting connection with what Sammy Ramsey tells us about the behavior of Varroa mites. During his EAS keynote last year, when talking about the life cycle of Varroa mite, he shared the biological need, let's call it part of the life cycle, for the female mite to come out of the cell and hop onto an adult nurse bee so it can consume resources from the fat body. And being more specific, the vitelligenin that is the basis of the egg yolk precursor that affords the ability for a varroa mite to lay an egg with the shell when they go back into the cells to reproduce. Varroa mites, varroa mites do not have this capability on their own. They are dependent upon the bees for this particular thing. As beekeepers, we especially love the product Formic Pro because it penetrates the cappings and it kills the mites that are hiding in cap cells. Other products do not do that. And truthfully, that is a real problem for us because there are many times when the mites are in abundance under the cappings and locked away to us. And we could issue all the treatments we want, but they're simply not being effective in the height of mite making season when this consequence is in place. Now, this isn't what I'm going for here, but bear in mind, the real opportunity of OA any day is thinking about the fact that the female mite has no choice but to use an adult bee for a period of time to get the resource mentioned. That provides exposure for the mites. If we can exploit this window on a routine basis, then we can kill the mites before they can get back into the protection of hiding under capped brood bingo end of kevin moment i think the coming years beekeepers are going to go their own way and researchers are going to do the research because the trend is going to head in that direction and they're going to use their newfangled toys because the barrier to use given the portability problem has been worked out will make it rather routine to do oa treatments now, these devices are not cheap. They never have been. But in comparison to the cost of losing hives, the rationale makes them, makes these devices in current times a very approachable investment. I feel like it's going to become commonplace in the years to come that beekeepers are going to be told even at the beginning beekeeper level, they're going to be encouraged to get one of these as a matter of routine and that administering OA treatments routinely are just going to become commonplace. As it is now, the common U.S. practice is broodless periods. I see posts every Thanksgiving or soon after the New Year 
of people in winter coats smiling while they vaporize their hives. I think in time you're going to see posts of people wearing t-shirts, sweating in the summertime with the device in their hand. OA any day? It's going to start happening in 2024. Now I'm not going to put my crystal ball away yet. There's one additional thing that I'm kind of cheering for, hoping it will follow. When I was in Calgary last year for the Northern Lights Conference, for the Western Apiculture Society, we got to see a pail of oxalic acid tablets sitting on the table during Medhat Nasser's talk. The Canada Marketplace is creating a tablet form of OA that is a, look, the official product in the United States is Api Bioxyl. You should not be using wood bleach. You have no idea what they put in the product that you're buying off the shelf at Home Depot or Lowe's or Menards or wherever you get it. You know that the oxalic acid being placed into Api Bioxyl, sold by beekeepers, and yes, it's expensive, is the purest form, and if you're putting OA in your hives where you eventually are consuming the honey, then you should use that product and not who knows what, containing lead, I made that up, but it could be possible, from the, the thing that's coming from the hardware store, because that's meant to bleach your deck, not to be putting in your honeybee hives. But I digress. The Canada Marketplace is creating a tablet form of OA that's not available in the U.S. yet. It comes in pre-measured doses and looks a bit like a lozenge. The product is provided by Bee Health Pharma, St. Albert, Alberta, Canada. If you want to look it up, I'm pretty sure the name of it is XVAR. That's the name of the tablets. The letter X followed by a dash and a capital V as in Victor AR. Medhad had a bucket of them sitting on the table and I'm pretty sure he said that they were available for purchase in bee stores in parts of Canada. The simplicity of the form factor is that each of the individual doses is a gram. You pop one tablet into your OA vaporizer for each gram you want to use. They're sealed in a bucket and that prevents them from exposure to moisture and there's no need to get a scale out to figure what your meter doses are. And before you say it, I know, before you write into me, I know that a lot of people have figured out and it's not that big of a deal to measure out a dose in an efficient manager. Man, wow. In an efficient manner is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but the simplicity of just picking up a gram tablet, dropping it into a chamber, I don't know how you couldn't appreciate that. Time will tell if I get this one right, but my slogan in 2024 is OA any day. And I think this is the year that it begins to take root. Topic number one. Turning to the back of the book, I think it is good as a beekeeper. Every once in a while, you need to spend a moment looking at the universe and thinking about the big picture. I said just a bit ago that I seem to be in a reflection 
headspace lately. For that reason, I'm going to call this topic in this episode, Muse. Every once in a while, I find myself going down the rabbit hole reading commentary on Facebook. Sometimes it's the beginner beekeeper group. Sometimes it's the master beekeeper. Other times it's treatment free. And well, the number of beekeeping groups to absorb information from is limitless. Hold on to that for a second and let me say something out loud. In my line of work and in the world at large today, we are entering into the age of artificial intelligence. In the grand scheme of how that works at a superficial level, someone, somewhere, very smart data scientists, have taken the broad spectrum knowledge of mankind and built an algorithm. Taking into consideration how data relates to other data, and from that they can infer meaning. It's rather abstract. If I could equate that to reading a Facebook forum and pretending that me, Kevin, I am an AI bot, I consume all the comments and based on my human understanding of what people are writing about, I can infer consensus or idea. Now I'll come back to AI is amazing. But why can't we humans do the same kind of thing in an analog manner? Instead of artificial intelligence, how about we apply human intelligence? The interesting thing about the topic of beekeeping is it's rather extensive in the body of knowledge and context. I don't know of any AI in the current day that has a firm grasp of the broad spectrum of beekeeping context and how it relates, especially when it comes to nuance. Everything that I've tested comes back with a rudimentary understanding and the AI flat out hallucinates, which is the term when artificial intelligence seems to make things up just to give you an answer. So I called this topic Muse. I think it's going to be a bit dangerous, but with a qualifier. I want to be safe to say that what I think about interesting summaries of trends that I've encountered while browsing through feedback on those myriad forums, this is just me processing what I'm reading and picking up on the trends. And like anything, the truth is what you make of it. Case in point, if I did nothing but follow the recommendations of all the people in the Beginner's Beekeeping Forum, I would likely be convinced, as an AI bot, that it looks good if I don't have any background to judge it against. Now, in the real world, I have the benefit of learning and experience, and I can see a lot of it, while harmless, is misguided. I have a leg up on that AI that's looking in the beginner beekeeper form. I don't have the uninclined bias of an AI. And with the experienced eye that I have, I could see where things should be disqualified. Now, I'm not claiming that I'm infallible, but I like to think that I'm pretty adept at collecting all the responses when analyzing a topic and processing what's worthwhile. 
I see it as an exercise in collating the experience of many individuals by examining the factoids that they're sharing in the more detailed exchanges. If you know about the promise of artificial intelligence processing, it's going to be the panacea of what one could do. In fact, when it's provided with a massive amount of clean, accountable data, the ability for AI to process that, synthesize that, analyze it, it's, it's really awe-inspiring. And my prediction is the AI revolution will change the world in a manner that rivals the birth of the World Wide Web. But alas, for the time being, you have to rely on someone like me who's playing the role and taking the opportunity to tell you the way I see it. And therein lies the rub. Am I worthy? Sometimes I question myself on that. But to my way of thinking, there's no harm in investing brain cells to examine things theoretically, and I do that all the time. So with no further ado, I'm going to share a couple of impressions that have surfaced recently things that I've been paying attention to. Number one, year number three is the problematic window for a colony. I've been watching this dynamic for quite some time. I suspected it, and I've been looking for it. To be more specific about the context I am currently evaluating, I've been looking to learn if treatment colonies and treatment-free colonies have a different survival ability ratio when it comes to longevity. I've been paying attention to this, looking for evidence and clues for the past five years. And I'm starting to conclude that whether you treat your bees or whether you're a treatment-free beekeeper, very few colonies go past year three without some sort of risk profile. Kevin moment. I know a lot of very good beekeepers. Credit where credit is due. I don't fit into that category. I'm not as good as I could be, should be, and I look to those beekeepers with admiration. I have my reasons and my rationale, but there's something to be said about those that are, like, spot on on their game. The ones that truly commit to the craft of beekeeping, they're likely not subject to the scrutiny of this conversation. That's going to come up in a moment, to be clear. You can do mite management and not be subject to third-year failures. There's no absolute in this world, and this exception, managed bees, needs to be acknowledged during the course of talking about this topic. End of Kevin moment. A three-year risk profile. It's a complicated thing to assess because some dynamics make it inconsistent from experience to experience. For example, along the continuum, was a queen replaced? Did the hive swarm? Did someone make sure that the mites did not exceed thresholds in a persistent manner? And so on and so on. Even with all these variables, it seems to me, and I have a general impression, that if your colony crosses over to the third year and does not have some sort of reset, it's in jeopardy of perishing. 
in the not too distant future of year three. So the question is, after hearing that statement, what exactly do I mean by reset? I'm simply going to say that a reset requires a new, fresh, current day queen. One that is reared in the current day environment and has the genetics that are simpatico with whatever the world is throwing at a colony to challenge its survival in current day. Being less cryptic about that, one example might be that a queen that's three years old may not be equipped to create progeny that can stand up to whatever the viruses are in the wild three years removed. Now, I know queens evolve and every time a queen lays a, another swath of eggs that the genetics are generally moving along. But I feel like a new queen that goes out and gets mated with the drones is going to introduce genetic material that a three-year-old queen is missing. Maybe I'm overthinking that. I don't know. I want to avoid going off on, you know, some sort of tangent. Now, this is where some of you are saying that's total horse hockey. And, you know, I'm okay with that. Speculation is how you evaluate something and try to learn. And I feel like it's a healthy thing to consider these hypotheses and play pretend to see if there's any merit. For me, it all stems from a pattern that emerged where beekeepers are sharing that their hives went south after the third year. That's not a hallucination. People are voluntarily offering up that information in a non-biased manner and given my spidey sense, I, I know to look for it. I'm just, up oh, there it is again. But there it is. Oh, see that person said it. I just keep seeing it over and over again. I'm not asking for it. I'm just observing the reports. I have no influence to ask the people, you know, what's the answer for long colony survival? I just keep encountering the same sentiment in an organic manner as I read through people relaying their experience. So nothing more to say on that other than it's an observation I'm holding on to. Isn't that an interesting factoid? I have nothing to do right now but to chew on it, mull it over. For entertainment's sake, I've shared it with you. Now let's move on to subject number two. If you thought that one was bad, this one's going to bake your noodle. To borrow a phrase from the Matrix. I read something the other day that gave me an aha moment. Maybe I'm just catching up to what others already know, but well, this is the moment where I just say this out loud. I want to say that in my experience, a specific proportion of beekeepers manage their colonies in a less than rigorous way. That's a nice way of saying that I've encountered so many treatment beekeepers that are not with the program of keeping thresholds to recommended norms. Think about the beekeepers that you encounter and ask yourself how many times has someone said, well, you know, just monitored my mites and I need to treat. And somewhere along the line, they might say what the numbers are, if they happen to share that. 
How many times has the number been like, wow, hmm, that's a big number. And before you think I'm being a little bit too harsh, I'm going to throw myself in the pool. Not only occasionally, but on many occasions, I've encountered this dynamic personally. I'm personally bopping along, operating under the impression that I'm doing just fine with Colony X. And I don't see it coming. I might be thinking, well, my counts were this, and they're probably going to progress and be that. It's not malicious ignorance. It's more like I made an educated guess. Then I take my mic check and boom, goes out the window. It's double digits. Even good beekeepers, just lauding them a moment ago, the ones that follow with rigor, are not immune to this and get surprised on occasion. It seems to me, not only is this more common than we'd like to admit, but the fact is, if we're paying attention, it's borderline routine. And I'm saying this out loud. For every treatment beekeeper out there, that monitors and treats with rigor, the ones that ensure the population of mites do not get out of control, there are multiples by a factor of who knows how much on the other side. The less rigorous beekeepers may implement treatments, but from a management practice standpoint, they just don't have a handle on mite populations. They can employ a treatment regime that knocks the mites down, but mites are already there, double-digit numbers. If the ratio that I just explained is skewed the other way, and the rigor beekeepers would outweigh the lack of rigor beekeepers, I don't think we'd have the experience of loss of hive that gets reported every year. I don't think that would happen. But simply put, the evidence of hive loss, non-rigor beekeepers are breeding mites and they're sharing the responsibility when the bees go out into the world at large with mites on their backs. Now I want you to ponder the implication of what that means. For years, treatment-free beekeepers have been castigated for breeding mites. Yet when we look at this more widely, we only need to look at the beekeeping practice at large to realize that the problem is bigger than the management styles. I'm thinking the sooner we realize this, the sooner we understand that we're all responsible for the mite distribution network. Colonies with high mite loads are colonies with high mite loads. I'd be remiss if I didn't throw out one more thought, calling an input to the discussion. We cannot discount the feral factor. Feral, unmanaged hives also create additional traffic in the mite distribution network. Now, I know I've had a lot of these in this episode, but Kevin, moment. All right, it's time. <laughs> Sorry for me to call it what it is. I've given a polite title of mite distribution network, if I'm being honest, is a thinly veiled cover for mite bombs. So there, I've said it. And I didn't say it to offend anyone. The truth is the breadcrumbs led me to put this together. 
It was, in a way, organic synthesis of beekeeper disclosures and how many mites they have while reading forums, telling their experience in the spirit of exchange. And again, not leading the witness. These are people just saying, I did a mite count and this was the number. If you add up the number of times somebody said this is the number and it's above the threshold and most of the time people are reporting things in double digit numbers and i don't know if that's just a byproduct of if it's double digits exciting to tell somebody holy crap i had 24 mites in my sample and therefore that gets reported more often there is possibly a bias there but even just the number of people going oh my this is what i had Occurrences that you read make you say, hmm, happens a lot. <laughs> End of Kevin moment. One last aside. I also considered forum discussions with treatment-free communities where they discuss the merit of whether there's any value to monitor or not. And you'd be surprised. That discussion happens all the time in that community where people say it's worthwhile just to know, other people are saying it's a useless bit of information, and so on. I don't have an opinion on that. There's a lot that feel that the treatment-free way is irresponsible, and they accuse treatment-free beekeepers of shirking their responsibility for the harmful mite bombs. And they have no idea, because they don't monitor, what they're actually doing in the guise of the overall problem. I'm sorry, I'm going to say this out loud. I think that's a disingenuous, given what we just talked about. The biological propagation of varroa mites within a beekeeping colony. We say that again. <laughs> the biological propagation of varroa mites within a beekeeping colony is responsible for the mite distribution network, along with the realities that everyday beekeeping practices management style notwithstanding, beekeeping norms, and human nature. It's a simple tally of doing math as evidenced by real-world disclosure. You could do the math. And so two thoughts of the day, thinking out loud, musing, and maybe you'll take what you know about these topics and consider it and make your own impressions. The critical thinking of a beekeeper is a bit of what this podcast is about. Well, what do you know? It's time for the first local hive report of the year. This weekend, I had a chance to go from hive to hive and peek under the roof and see what was functional. Before I relay the tally, I'm going to share a few outward observations and kind of ground everybody. We were hosting 17 active hives during the main part of the season. Some of the hives were third and four year hives with no interventions, while others were occupied by external swarms that moved into the equipment in the beginning of last year when we set out swarm traps. Two of the swarm occupied boxes did not make it through. The Ware hive declined late in the fall and the swarm that moved into one of the swarm traps on the far side of our property had perished before New Year's Day. The reason I point that out is that those two hives were not hives that had queens reared from the stock we've been choosing. 
Secondly, two other hives did not make it to the inspection this weekend. Joining the Ware Specialty Hive were my other two specialty hives in operation. Not a knock on specialty, it's just serendipity. The Lance Hive and the Top Bar Hive ended this season. Now what's unique about the latter two is that those two colonies were reared queens from us, from the program. And they made it three years without any intervention. To say that differently, I purposely stayed out of those hives once they were established. And I let them persist naturally. In fact, uh, other than peeking every once in a while into the lay-ins hive, I didn't touch it. If they wanted to swarm in spring, I let them. I could say that I do believe they probably did swarm. Who knows, maybe those are the swarms that went in the swarm traps. But I always feel like the swarms from our property fly away. I could evidence that by the fact that I see the clusters hanging above the trees in the apiary. And then I watch them fly away. They're not flying down and going into our boxes. And maybe once in a while that happens, but... Hmm. So... You know, look, I could say I do believe they did swarm and maybe the offshoots of both of these hives are living in our woods. It's hard to say. If you're keeping score, that's four hives down. And it should be noted that these hives are all on our home property. If I take those four hives out of the tally, that leaves 13 left. And sorry, I didn't think we were going to be doing verbal math here, but I'll get to a point after doing some of this math. We do not know how the three hives we're hosting at Valleycrest are doing. We're going to make a run out this weekend, actually, and see where they stand. So take those three out that leaves ten hives in the home yard to consider. These ten hives are what I will say is the low treatment program. They're the ones that have queens that we've been hosting, man manifesting through queen rearing, all 10 of them. Now, somewhere along the line, I think maybe it was July or August, I did some mite counts for them. And I recall just sitting here, that two of the hives had really high mite counts and three of the hives had moderate counts, one of them you might would call low to the threshold. Four of the 10 have perished and six persist as of this week's inspection. One of the hives that had a moderate mite count is the one that's no longer with us. And I'm not sure what the takeaway is, but the two that had high mite counts, not only double digit, but 20 plus, in the first row are still going. The one with the lowest count, the one that was below threshold, which is in the back row of my apiary, is still with us. Now to the quality of what's there, going through the six that make it through. I peeked under the roof and each of the colonies are in the top boxes across the board. Size-wise, five of the six are moderate in size. 
Actually, the two polystyrene hives are large. Go figure. One of the hives in the back row is small. It has about three seams of bees. It's the size of a small nuke. And it's residing currently in a double deep. If I were smart, I'd probably reduce that down to a small poly box to try and help it through. But from a low treatment standpoint, I'm trying not to mess with them. I do believe that the three hives, given the condition they were back when we checked them, that are hosted at Valley Crest are probably okay. But you never know. So if those three hives, coupled with the ones on the property that are still functional, that's 50% loss at this point. It's still winter. This week we had an unseasonable weather pattern. Unseasonable. And they seem to be predicting a Valentine's Day storm, snowstorm, and cold temperatures for the week ahead. So look, it's winter. I uh, can't count your chickens now, but usually when they get this far into the season, they stand a reasonable chance to make it till April. I'm actually happy that the bees got a little flying weather because that allowed me to check what was going on at the entrance. I saw pollen coming in. I see the bees scrambling in our... We have bird feeders out and they like to dig through the debris. I don't know what they do with what they find there. It's not too dissimilar from feeding them pollen patties, but I saw real pollen going in. And so the bees are starting to build in anticipation of spring. And as I watched the clusters, when I pulled the roof off, I was looking at the quality of the bees. And I could remark that there's some new bees in there. I could see what they look like. Fresh, shiny, beautiful, young bees. So all the, all the queens are rearing already and starting to build for spring. It's still early and there's some risk, especially for that small hive. But here's to hoping that the Valley Crest, you know, hives held on and that they didn't change direction. And we'll have what we have going into spring. I have to say out loud, I kind of thought it was going to be worse. I really thought we were going to take a beating this year. And if we get through with what we have, we can rebuild to fill out all of the equipment that's not in operation, and then some. And as I've said over and over again, some of the equipment that's coming out of operation, when we clean up the dead outs, I'm going to uh, do a little upgrade of some of the stuff that needs to be retired. I am so looking forward to queen rearing this year and keeping the colonies headed up by current vigorous young queens, taking note from what we were just talking about. I'm hoping this nets a benefit in the overall operation as far as colonies persisting year on year in the world of Varroa mites. And I think that the Queens that we reared did okay, ratio-wise. And the swarm ones, they're a crapshoot, because you have no idea where the swarm bees came from. I want to say that over the weekend, we went out to the bee tree that we just harvested and brought that hive in. That box is sitting on pad number one. And the bees seem happy they were flying, no problem. 
Before I close this out, I have to come back to the hives that made it three years and now they're no longer with us. It is serendipity that played out that way just after talking about three-year runs. And now those hives need a refresh. It's just another input to the data of developing approaches for keeping bees in this time. And I recorded that piece, Muse, uh, several days ago. And it, how interesting is it to find that, that the three-year and done number showed up in this weekend. It's like timely. Local hive report, check. Almost to spring. Three quarters of the way there. And I'm really looking forward to see how things persist and keep my fingers crossed. This seems a good place to close the episode down. Before I leave, I will say to you, if you want to reach me, you can send an email to kevin at bkcorner.org. Our website is www.bkcorner.org. There you'll find posts for each episode that include the timelines for the topics and links to things discussed in every show. Please do me a favor, if you would, take a moment, if you could, to like our podcast in your podcast player. Leave a note, pass along the existence of the show to your fellow beekeepers. It does help to get more eyeballs on the work that we do here, and I'm so appreciative of everyone's support for that. Over the past couple months, I've been adding random features to the website. This week, I posted to the blog a recipe for the seeded honey I discussed in episode 230. We recently finished consuming a batch that we had made, and in the course of refreshing it, I finally took some notes as to the exact recipe and captured it in a blog post. It's time for beginner beekeeper courses and spring meetings, and I'm looking forward to heading out to Berks County, Pennsylvania for delivering a session on the 24th of February. Unfortunately, that's the same day as the New Jersey State meeting, but sometimes these things can't be avoided. Yeah, okay, time to get out of Dodge. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well. Catch you on the next episode.